Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. We're glad that you've joined us today as we continue to discuss truth. We've looked at different worldviews and the problems with them. We've considered how God has revealed His truth in various ways. Today, we will look more specifically at the Word of God and how we can have confidence in it being just that, the Word of God. Speaker Michael Penfold takes up five reasons why the Bible is the Word of God. Its unity, its sublimity, its accuracy its prophecy, and its efficacy. We're sure you will find today's message informative and helpful in getting a handle on this great and important topic. But you see this book here. We don't value this book enough, you know. I wonder if there's someone here today, and and as I've been talking about the Bible, you're thinking, the Bible? He actually believes the Bible? I can't believe it. In the 21st century, there's a a man up there, and he actually believes... he must have checked his brain at door before he came in. This is ridiculous. How, how can we trust the Bible? No, 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 no. Let's get back to this book just for a few moments this afternoon. This is the absolute final revelation of God to humanity. Now, it's very, very important that we not only know that, but we know why we know that. What you believe doesn't determine truth. Nothing is true because you believe it. No, it's the other way around. We believe this book because it is true. Now, let me give you... Five reasons why the Bible is the Word of God. What we're actually saying is that out of the millions and millions of books in the world, there is one inspired, infallible book. Just one. It's different to all other books. Written, its source is God, it's channeled through the writers. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, divine, miraculous book of God. All the other books are different. You say, well, that's quite a claim. Yeah, well, it is quite a claim. So here's some evidences that the Bible is the Word of God. Evidence number one, it's unity. Now you say, well, sure, lots of books have got unity. No, 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 just think about this. This was written over 1,600 years by 40 different people, most of whom didn't know each other. Those 40 people who wrote over 1,600 years, they write about everything from origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, and history. And yet, despite that, there are no contradictions In the word of God. Imagine if 40 of you sat down to write a book about history, theology, and so on. And we collated it all together. It would be the biggest mess you've ever seen. We had an evangelist in our country. His name was Stan Ford. He was an atheist and a communist. He had memorized 101 contradictions in the word of God. How about that? Memorized. He was from Devon, which is a lovely place. You can go on holiday to Devon. Sometimes the sun is shining down there and you can go down there and and have a lovely time. So he's he's in Devon, and he's walking along the road one day, and coming down the road is a girl, this is about 70 or 80 years ago, she's coming down the road is a girl, she's a Christian, she's on the way to a tent meeting. She sees Stan Ford, the boxer, he was a boxer, as well as a communist and an atheist, he's coming up the road, she stops and says, I want you to come with me to that tent down there. Not at all, I'm not coming to that tent, I believe it's a load of rubbish. You're coming with me to that tent. No, I don't want, no, no, I want you to come. She insisted and insisted that he came. 
They eventually became husband and wife, but that's another story. He came into the tent, sat down. The preacher got up, sang a hymn, prayed, sang another hymn, preached. And the whole way through he's singing, what a load of rubbish. Wait till I get to the end. I am going to rip that man to shreds. So the meeting finished, prayer, hymn, everybody goes out, he stays behind in the tent. The preacher goes over to him. Hello, how are you? Nice to see you in the tent, can I help you? I've got some questions for you. It's fine. So they sit down at the back of the tent. Stan says, there are 101 contradictions in the Bible. Oh, well, here's what we'll do. I'm not in any hurry. You give me the first one. Just go through them. So, he says, right, we'll start at the beginning. So he turns to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 was written by a different person to Genesis chapter 2. And we know that because in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about God as Elohim. And in Genesis chapter 2, it's, it talks about God as Jehovah. So it's quite clearly that that's not the, not, not, not the same person. Blah, 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 blah. So this, this evangelist, he was ready for him, you see. So he had the answer to that, that God reveals himself in different ways at different times. And, and the reason, the meaning of the word Elohim and the meaning of the word Jehovah and so on, he quoted the New Testament and showed that Moses wrote both chapters. And he says to him, one down, one hundred to go. Right, okay, he says, okay, Genesis chapter 4, so he goes to Genesis 4. Uh, Cain knew his wife. Where did Cain get his wife from? Sure, there, there, there was nobody that he could marry. It was just Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Where did he get his wife from? He flips over to the next book. Adam had sons and daughters. Cain married his sister. Oh. Two down. 99 to go. Do you know when they got to about 95, Stanford said, I'm convinced. And Stanford got converted that night. He realized he was just an atheist on the run from God. And he became an evangelist. He pitched gospel tents himself and preached the gospel. He said, I thank God for that evangelist who not only knew his God, but he knew his Bible. It's a sublime book. He said, oh, there's a lot of sublime books. No, 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 no. It's a sublime book. Think of the perfection of its content. Think of the majesty of its style. Just open the first page. In the beginning, God. Just think of those staggering words that science contradicted for centuries and have had to bow at its feet and acknowledge it's true. Think of the excellency of its doctrine. Do you know the Bible has a ring about it? A ring of authority, a ring of authenticity. Just pick up some of the mythological ancient books of history. It's uh, ridiculous. The Bible just has that sublime, self-authenticating, self-attesting, self-validating character to it. It's unity, it's sublimity. What about its accuracy? Now, when I say the Bible is accurate, I'm not just saying, okay, so you can pick up the highway code. You have highway codes over here, how to, how to drive, so you pick up the highway code. It's accurate. No, I'm not talking about accuracy as in no mistakes. I'm talking about advanced scientific accuracy. So, for example, in Jeremiah 33, the Bible says that you can't count the number of stars in the sky. Imagine a book before the invention of telescopes, before Hubble, before anything like that. This book confidently says repeatedly that you cannot count the stars. They are innumerable. Well, any fool knows you can count the stars. They used to count them. The Romans, the Greeks, they all counted them. They actually list, they listed them. Starting off at 2,000, 3,000, eventually they got to about 6,000. Yeah, we've we got the number. We, we count them. We, we map the whole sky. We know how many. The Bible's wrong. No, but then they discovered the telescope. Then they discovered, oh dear, those little dots are not stars. Those little dots are galaxies. It turns out that there are 
170 billion galaxies, each containing 400 billion stars. That's, a, that's officially a septillion. I don't think they've counted them all yet. The Bible says they're innumerable. How did it know that? At home, I've got some of the commentaries of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German reformer, lived in the 1500s. Great man, got saved out of Roman Catholicism, and he led the, he led the way in Europe, and so on. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Don't take his commentary on Genesis seriously, please. So he's writing his commentary on Genesis, and I was reading it, I was just shocked. You know what he believed happened with the birds in winter? Well, we all know what happens with the birds in winter, right? Fly away down south to wherever, Brazil or West Indies or wherever the nice places are, and they go down there and, and they, they get the nice weather, and then they all come back. That's called migration, right? We understand that. Do you know what he thought they did? They went out to sea, and then they dived down into the water of the sea, and they stayed under the water all winter, and then they came back. That's in his commentary. That was anciently believed among the ancients, and it's in Martin Luther's commentary. He actually believes that mice can come out of decay. He believed in spontaneous generation. It's embarrassing. This guy's on our side, and he believes these things. And, and this is only 500 years ago. Imagine how many embarrassing bloopers there must be in this book when it's 3,000 years old. Oh, but they're not there. This book doesn't say the birds go and dive into the Atlantic Ocean for the winter. This book doesn't say you can get life from non-life by accident. This book starts off with the bold assertion that the world had a beginning. Well, there's only two options. It either did or it didn't. And any time prior to around 1920, you would have been laughed out of your classroom for saying that that's true. We know it doesn't have a beginning. The laws of thermodynamics show that you can't destroy or create matter. It's been here forever. We all know that. The Bible's accurate. It said that the universe had a beginning. It said that the earth floats freely in space. I love that one. Job chapter 26 verse 7. The earth floats freely in space. Do you know Job's oldest book in the Bible? Do you think God has a sense of humor? The oldest book in the Bible says the earth hangs on nothing. And contemporaneous with that statement were people that believed it was on the back of a turtle. On the back of some Atlas guy or something. The word of God is marked by unity. It's marked by sublimity. It's marked by accuracy. It's marked by prophecy. This is really, really tremendous. Peter Orzek's a drug dealer from Prince Edward Island. He's just a crooked, drug-taking sinner. No interest in the gospel. He thinks the Bible's a load of rubbish. But by a miracle of grace, his little daughter starts going to Sunday school. And the next thing, a couple of brethren from the assembly go and knock on his door. And they're sitting in the living room. There he is, just a mess. And they start talking to him, and he just gives them a load of nonsense. He has this theory about what he believes. So one of the brethren says, would you mind if I read you something? Sure, go ahead. He says, I'm going to read you a chapter. He turns to Isaiah 53. And he's opposite this drug addict guy who's just in and out of jail and all this. And he's reading him in Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. So he reads through this. And he looks up at the end. And Peter was kind of touched by it. But he didn't want to let on that he was touched by it. So he says to the man, he says, Yeah, 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 I know the Christmas story. I know the Christmas story. I know the Christmas story. He says, you know the Christmas story. Yeah, yeah, I know the Christmas story. He said, I just read you something that was written 700 years before the Christmas story happened. So here's a drug addict. Somebody reads to him 
something that was written way before Jesus was born, and he can see it straight away. That's talking about Jesus. It is an indisputable fact of history that Isaiah predates Christ. You can go to Jerusalem, you can see a copy of Isaiah, it's found in the, one of the jars in Dead Sea Scrolls. It is an indisputable fact of history that Isaiah 53 was written before Jesus was born. And yet a drug addict can say it's about Jesus. What does that tell me? This book is a divinely authored book. It's prophecies. It predicts everything. That Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. That he will ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. That he'll be nailed. It predicts he'll be nailed to a cross before nailing to crosses existed. How many pieces of silver he'll be sold for? He'll be pierced, but his bones won't be broken. It's marked by prophecy. Finally, because of its efficacy. That's just a fancy word meaning its effectiveness. Do you know, if this book is the word of God, it would need to be effective. Don't you think so? This book would need to be cross-cultural, timeless. Imagine if you picked up this book and your, your immediate impression was, This has no relevance to me whatsoever. What Christian doesn't pick up the Bible every day and think, I can't believe that there's a word for me this morning. I can't believe how relevant. There it is. Some king of Judah that lived 700 years ago and there's something that's going to help me right now. Here's this cross-cultural, timeless book. Supremely influential, supremely powerful, supremely relevant. It's efficacy. Well, we could stay there a long time. I think everybody that's a Christian here is a proof, positive, efficacy of the word of God. Changed lives. Oh, you say people can get changed by anything. No, 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 no. Yes, you can go to the Alcoholics Anonymous and give up drink. That's one thing. Occasionally that happens. It's a totally different thing to take someone who is godless, who is self-centered, who thinks that everything revolves around them and they're living their lives independent of whoever this God is. And the next moment, upon receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, they're now interested in the Word of God and in holiness and in God's plan for the universe and in seeing other people saved. There is nothing more powerful than seeing a changed life, a living witness to the efficacy of the Word of God. Now, there are some ramifications for truth. I'm just going to put a summary up there of some of the things that we've been through. Yes, truth matters. Truth exists. All truth is God's truth. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Naturalism, the idea that the cosmos is all there is, they have no basis for truth. Truth is knowable to us who are made in God's image. The God of truth revealed himself so that revelation is the ultimate epistemology. It's how we know what we know. You say, well, where does my mind fit into all this? Am I supposed to just throw away my mind and just somehow kind of... No, no, no. Faith and reason are not enemies. Faith and reason are friends. You say, hang on a minute, how does that work? Have you ever heard some of these atheists talk about faith as being anti-intellectual? And they'll say to you something like, well, faith is belief without evidence. Faith is, is a mental illness. That's what Richard Dawkins calls faith, mental illness. Faith is believing something in the teeth of the evidence. In other words, you can go to a Christian and you can show them evidence and they just say, oh well, uh, my book tells me something different. I I reject all evidence because I've got faith. That's not faith. That's a caricature of faith. So God has given you and me 
In his own image, he's given us reasoning capacity. What does he tell us to do with our mind? Deny it? Check it out of the door? He tells us, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind. Come now, says he in Isaiah chapter 1. Let us reason together. Why does Luke write his gospel? I'm just studying Luke at the moment in my own private study. I was just enjoying it. Luke chapter 1. He says, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of these things. Does he write to Theophilus and say, listen Theophilus, you're just going to have to believe this. I know it doesn't sound right. I know it's kind of, you know, resurrections and all this kind of thing. It all sounds pretty wacky, um, Theophilus, but you're just going to have to believe it. I know your brain's telling you something different, but you're just going to have... Dr. Luke says, I'm going to give you 24 chapters. And by the time you get to the end of those chapters, you are going to know absolutely sure that this really happened. Didn't we read it in the Gospel of John? John says, listen, I know what I'm saying is the truth. I was there. I was standing at the cross. I saw the soldiers coming with their crowbar. I saw them about to break the legs of Christ. And they didn't do it. That the scripture might be fulfilled which says a bone of him shall not be broken. Ah, but there's another scripture. And the other scripture says they will look on him whom they pierce. So one scripture has been fulfilled. They didn't break his legs because he's dead. But what about the other scripture? When they saw he was dead already, a soldier took a spear, pierced his side, and out straight away came blood and water. Says John, he that saw it, their testimony, his testimony is true. He says in the Gospel of John, shortly after that, these things have I written unto you, that you might believe. You say, no, no, I don't understand that. So now you're saying he's giving evidence that you might believe. Surely if you've got the evidence, you don't need to believe. If you've got the evidence, that's it. This is what Dawkins is saying. You see, he says, well, you don't need faith. If you've got evidence, you don't need faith. This is to misunderstand what faith is. You see, faith is not just believing that. Faith is also believing in. So when I read the word of God, I discover the truth of what actually happened. This is an eyewitness testimony of the birth, death, burial, resurrection of Christ and everything else connected with it. And as I read it, I can accept that this is true. I believe that it is true. But faith is not just believing that. Faith is believing in. And so what I'm saying is this. I've discovered through the reading of this book my origin that I'm created by God, that I fell into sin, and that God has sent his son to be my saviour, and I can see that I'm a sinner, condemned and on the way to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Ah, but I see by the Spirit of God that Christ died for me. And so I'm not just believing the facts of history, I'm believing in Jesus Christ. So faith is not just an act of reason. Faith is that total and absolute resting upon the revealed Christ of God. Faith and reason are not enemies. They are friends. Truth is total. Truth is unchanging. Truth is absolute. Truth is eternal. Truth is... Better finish with this. Truth is exclusive. Truth is exclusive. You say, what, what, what do you mean truth is exclusive? This is very important for the young people today. 
Okay, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Let's just use maths because that's really plain and obvious. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay, somebody comes along and says, well, I believe 2 plus 2 is 5. You're wrong. Well, I'm offended. Sorry, you're wrong. Well, who do you think you are to say that you're right and I'm wrong? I mean, my opinion counts as much as yours. But 2 plus 2 is 4. That is reality. You see, whenever you have a truth claim, anything opposed to that truth claim is false. It has to be. Now, granted, if somebody says 2 plus 2 is 5, he's a little bit nearer than someone that says 2 plus 2 is 25. But though the guy that says 5 is a little bit nearer than the other guy, they're both flat wrong. And so when the God of heaven reveals himself to us in his word, anything that is opposed to this is wrong. And the world doesn't like that. And they've taken on with this postmodernism and this relativism and they want everybody to accept everybody's truth claims as valid. My opinion is just as valid as yours and my beliefs and my lifestyle. Isn't that what we're told now? Not if we're taking the Bible seriously. Not if we are understanding what God has revealed to us in his word. We're not being narrow-minded. We're not being bigoted. We're just being true. We're being right. We're taking God at his word. The origin of truth comes from the God of truth. He's made you in his image that you might appreciate the truth and believe the truth and hold the truth and love the truth. Yes, the Bible. There is no other book like it. It is unique in every way. Have you read it today? Have you ever let the Word of God speak to your heart? You need to if you ever want to know truth, if you ever want to know who you are, why you're here, where you're going, if you ever want to know your sins forgiven. As Mr. Penfold has expounded to us in these past few weeks, truth is total. It is complete, unchanging, absolute, eternal, and, yes, exclusive. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. No person can come unto God except through him. The truth, my friend, is a person, God himself. Do you know him? If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at anchorpointradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our Anchor Point website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is Glenn Todd. Thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul. <laughs>